Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. As it did everywhere in the United States, prohibition crippled the Texas wine industry. And just one winery, Valverde, survived prohibition under a sacramental wine provision. Today, Texas has about 350 wineries in operation, and the wine industry has gone through some growing phases over the last two decades. With eight AVAs so far, Texas is beginning to address the more subtle issues of terroir. Mesilla Valley AVA by El Paso in the extreme western part of Texas seeps into New Mexico and roughly corresponds with some of the first viticultural regions in Texas that date back to the 1600s. Drive east a bit, and you'll hit the Texas Davis Mountains AVA, tucked into the southern Rockies. Here the vineyards are at high elevations, and you'll find some interesting wines distinctive from the rest of the state. Continue driving east, and you'll hit the Escondido Valley AVA. Here, the elevation changes as you go north to south, but the predominant feature across the region is the loam soil. Making our way farther eastward yet, we hit the Texas Hill Country AVA, a very large AVA, about 9 million acres big. 9 million acres, that's about the size of Maryland and Connecticut combined, or eight Delawares. In all that land, there is quite a bit of variation in terms of soil type, elevations, and microclimates. This huge AVA includes two smaller AVAs, Fredericksburg AVA and Bell Mountain AVA. Fredericksburg AVA is on the tiny size for Texas, a little bigger than 70,000 acres, which is about half a Delaware. Here the soil is mostly clay loam, but there are elevation variations marked by low valleys and high peaks. The Bell Mountain AVA covers the southwestern slopes of, you guessed it, Bell Mountain. This is Texas's smallest AVA, clocking in at just one-third of a Delaware, and it sits in the middle of Texas Hill County AVA. Head north a little bit to the border, and you'll hit Texoma AVA along the Red River. Soils here are mostly sandy loam and clay. Finally, we come to Texas High Plains AVA. This area is up in that northern block of Texas on the west side. The post-prohibition era here began in the mid-1970s. They experienced a growth boom in the 90s, and today the large AVA has become a major state producer, with about 80% of Texas grapes coming from this region. Texas High Plains has some deposits of Terra Rosa soil atop a limestone bed, almost exactly like the famous Terra Rosa soil in Coonawarra, Australia, that are so famous for unique Cabernets. And speaking of Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet is definitely making a name for itself on the Texas High Plains Terra Rosa soils, and it is a pretty popular grape throughout Texas. Much of Texas's early investment in the wine business focused on top international varieties, like Cabernet and Chardonnay. But as the years go by, the grape story is shifting, as producers are looking more and more towards grapes that thrive in similar, warmer climates throughout the world, specifically varieties from southern France, Spain, and Italy. Viognier, Tempranillo, and Sangiovese in particular have experienced recent successes, and you'll also find many examples of Grenache, Mouvedre, Syrah, Alianico, and Vermentino. 
Texas deals with the threat of late freezes. The extreme temperature swing of a late freeze can wipe out a crop virtually overnight, especially when the freeze happens after bud break. This phenomenon particularly hurt the 2013 vintage in Texas high plains. In the 1800s, farmers would wake up the whole family in the middle of the night during a late freeze, and each person would run down a row of crops with a bucket, splashing a drop of water on each tiny plant that could get destroyed by the frost. Most of the plants you could hit with water would be saved as long as you wet them before the sun came up. Today, sprinklers can take care of this, but you only have this luxury at a winery if you have water rights and infrastructure. Pierce's disease can also ravage a vineyard. In part because of the prevalence of Pierce's disease, you see a lot of work with hybrids in Texas. In particular, Black Spanish, a hybrid with at least a century of experience under its belt, and the more recent Blanc de Bois, a white hybrid born in 1968. Because of Texas state culture, you'll find some producers leaning toward bold reds that compare with the meat-heavy cuisine. But you'll also find several producers leaning towards crisp whites and rosés that cool you down in the Texas heat, or that can cut the spicy heat of some barbecue. Rosés seem to be taken pretty seriously in Texas, with many producers putting a heavy focus on rosé, and many local sommeliers showing support for rosé bottlings. Despite a viticultural history that dates back almost four centuries, the bulk of the modern Texas wine industry is about 30 years old, and winemakers are still negotiating grape varieties against climate and soil types. It's interesting to see how each individual AVA deals with their unique soils and climates, and while there are still many more chapters to be written in the Book of Texas Wine, it's off to a rather intriguing start. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand Greg Collins of the Elm Group in Austin, Texas on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you, Evie? Nice to see you. Good to see you. So you're kind of unique in that you started your wine career at a winery and then later became a sommelier. Yeah, I did things a little bit backwards. When I turned 21, I was a senior by years at Texas A&M University. I was a sophomore by hours and mom and dad took me off of the payroll Rightfully so. Is that the lineup it's supposed to be? Senior, <laughs> sophomore? I was having a very good time, time in college. They took me off the payroll, and so I went to the local newspaper, the battalion, and I started flipping through trying to find a job. I needed to do something. And there was a local winery, Messinoff Winery in Bryan, Texas, that was hiring. I'm a tasting room manager. Where's Bryan? Uh, right outside of College Station. I see. Kind of neighboring little town. Had never had wine before in my life, but I went in to interview and the winemaker looked at me, the winemaker owner, Paul Bonarigo, looked at me and he was like, you're very young. You're 21 years old. Have you, do you enjoy wine? I said, no, sir, I've never had it. He said, well, why are you here? And I said, honestly, I need a job and I think this would be a good way to meet women. And he- Seems fair yeah, enough, honestly. He, he kind of laughed at me and then he realized I was being sincere and he 
hired me because of my you honesty. You really, really did want to meet women. Yeah. Is it, that- <laughs> it, it didn't work. Craig seems super <laughs> sincere. Uh, it, it didn't work, but I, I did. I had this idea. Because they like, do weddings, right? So you probably met they, like They had weddings, <laughs> but in my mind, it was like all these sorority girls would be coming in with their moms and they would drink that pink wine. I didn't know it was rosé or white Zinfandel. I just knew pink wine. But I fell in love with it. I fell in love with absolutely everything. I got some great retail experience. They eventually put me in charge of the harvest. And it's really where I started to develop a passion. I started tasting notes and I started trying to, they make a, Mincina Hoff makes a ton of different wines, probably at the time, 15 or 20 different grape varieties. So I was really exposed to a lot at a very early age. What is the Texas wine industry like? I mean, how many wineries are there? You know, it's the fifth largest wine producing state in the nation. It's the fourth largest wine consuming state in the nation. So that right there kind of gives you a state of the industry and the fact that we cannot make enough wine to supply the demand that we have in Texas. The industry started way back when with some Spanish settlers coming and planting the mission grape, but it really started taking off in the late 70s, early 80s with Messinoff, actually. They were the pioneers of the industry and really put this marketing force out there. But back in that time, the only thing that would sell in Texas was a Chardonnay, a Pinot Noir, a Cabernet, maybe a Merlot. Like the, those were the, the wines that the consumers were demanding. And so winemakers were planting those grapes and making those wines, and they weren't very good. Texas is in a climate that can support those grape varieties, as we know. But it's what they had to do at the time to kind of grow it to what it is today. And in the past probably 10 years, we've seen some really, truly great wines coming out of Texas. There have been farmers that are very focused on planting the proper grape for the proper climate and the proper soil, things that the old world figured out years and years ago. But we're such a young industry that it's just not catching on. Things like Tempranillo, some killer Syrah coming out of Texas, Alianico, Vermentino, these Mediterranean grape varieties that thrive in this type of climate. What did a harvest look like at Messina? They were a lot of fun. It was an event. Messina actually has a lot of vineyards throughout the entire state. So we just kind of had the ornamental vineyard, 40 acres or so, and we'd bring out people and let them pick the grapes and stomp the grapes and old I Love Lucy style. And it more than anything, I feel like the Bonarigos were establishing that, hey, this is kind of the wine culture. And we might be a little kitschy about it at times, but we can do great things in Texas and kind of still leading that charge. It's pretty amazing. There's some other amazing producers like the Dukemans and the McPhersons that are really planting some of those Mediterranean varietals and doing great things. And, you know, this year we received a boatload of rain in the spring, but it's in general, it's been a cooler summer for us, surprisingly. I know it's very hot outside right now, but everyone's expecting a great harvest this year. And I think it's going to be, I think 2015 is going to be that vintage that might put Texas on the map. I even hesitate saying that out loud, but if this could be the one and everyone's, there's a lot of energy and excitement surrounding that. Your next step was in distribution. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I had worked at Messina Hoff for about three or four years. In between that time, I actually went on a study abroad program to Italy. I was over in Italy in this small little town in Tuscany, Castiglione Fiorentino. I was there for about four months, and then I spent about two months traveling through Europe. I grew up a lot during that time. It was the first time that I had kind of been on my own in my life. I went from high school to the university, uh, but... I was in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M, very structured, very organized, military background type thing. And so that trip to Europe was really the first time where I was kind of on my own and figuring out stuff. And I grew up a lot and I, it's really where my passion for wine developed. It's in the heart of Tuscany. My favorite grape happens to be Sangiovese because of that experience. I was in this kind of a commune with about 60 other students from around the nation and You know, at the time you're a college student, you don't have any money, but I'm there to taste wine. And so I I got this idea. It was back in the Lira days. I got this idea to collect 10,000 Lira a week, $5 from any of the students that would give it to me. And I would go, I'd buy all of the wines from one town, Montalcino, Montepulciano, like 
Chianti Classico. I did a super Tuscan week and I go buy as many wines as I could with the lira that I had. And I just, I'd study about that one little town all week. And then I'd do a little presentation to the people that wanted to listen to me and we'd just sit and drink them. And it was in one of those tastings that I'll never forget it. It was the super Tuscan tasting and it was probably six or seven weeks in. And at this point we had done Bernaccia de San Gimignano's and Chianti's. And so I'd show up and I'd have like 15 different wines. We got to Super Tuscans and this is 2001 and Super Tuscans were expensive back then. So I show up with four bottles and I have a very disappointed audience. They're like, we, we came for quantity. We, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't care about this quality thing, Craig. And, but I remember a bottle of 1998 Broncaya Blue and I took a sip of it and it was that aha moment for me where I took a sip and I said, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. Ended up. I'm giving people less wine than they expect. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, this is it's, it. It served me well so far. <laughs> I finished that semester abroad and I went back, graduated from Texas A&M. And I can remember graduating and my mom looking at me and saying, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, mom, I, I, I like this wine thing. I, I really, this is what I'm going to do. She looked at me, I'll never forget it, and she said, you have effed around your entire life, you have traveled, you have partied, and it's time for you to get serious. And I thought, this is, this is what I want to do. And having spent all the time at the winery that I had, and really feeling like I had an idea for what that was, I wanted to understand what happened to wine once it left the winery. Um, so yeah, I went to the distribution site at that point first day of work. Um, I was in Houston, Texas. I was a merchandiser at Glazers. had no idea what to expect. Um, and I get to the office. Drew Hendricks was the sales rep that I was assigned to. And he looked at me <laughs> and he was like, I need to introduce you to the company and all that. He's like, we're going to Hooters. And I was like, what? He's like, we're going to go watch TV at Hooters all day. We're not eat wings, drink beer. And that was, that was day one of distribution. Um, <laughs> It was a great experience, though. I was put in the fine wine division at Glazers. It's where I met Guy Stout. He became a mentor to you. He was an absolute mentor to me. I can remember Drew and I both going to his, going to his office every Monday morning at 8 o'clock and knocking on the door, and Guy would open it, and he'd be like, you two little kids, like, I don't have time for you. And six weeks later, he finally got the idea that we actually cared enough, and he's like, okay, let me... Let me figure out what's going on with you two. And he kind of took us under his wing. It's and... like a W.C. Fields routine. He's like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. just, but the cat came back the very next day, just over and over again. And that was where I was introduced to really the world of studying wine and understanding how broad it was. What did he tell you in terms of program and tips? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't program and tips. It was more just an introduction to... I know you were just in Chianti, Craig, for six months, but this is what Chianti is. Like, this is how many regions there are in Chianti, and these are the other grape varieties. And up until that point, I knew Messinahoff. I can remember, I remember my first sales meeting at Glazer's. The owners of Farniente and Nickel and Nickel were coming, and distributor sales meeting, like they have 30 minutes to present all their wines. And I was, so looking forward to this. I mean, that was a tasting that I would have paid hundreds of dollars for, but now they're giving it to me for free. Right. And I remember I was this little merchandiser. You know how much this would be in lira? Yeah. <laughs> I was this little merchandiser sitting in the back, like writing my tasting notes. And I can remember all the sales reps looking at me like, who is this kid? Like, what is going on here? And I'm asking all these questions. And I remember my manager coming up at the end of the end of that meeting. And he said, look, like, we love that you're passionate about this, but that meeting went 50 minutes. It should have been 30. It's because of all the questions you're answering. Like we need to, you need to understand your role here. I was just, I was so into all of it at that time. Anything I could grasp onto was great for me. What was the distribution side like? I mean, how's it set up in Texas? Texas is on a three-tiered system. Uh, so it goes winery to distributor and then to either an on-premise or an off-premise account. And I spent a lot of years in distribution. I was in Houston for three or four years with Glazers, and then I was recruited away to go manage a 
kind of a small boutique distributor called Prestige Wine Cellars and spent a number of years there. And then I ended up importing Italian wine to the United States. But it in Texas, at least, that distribution piece is kind of the hub of the industry. In my mind, everybody should have distribution experience just so they understand how wine moves. And it's that experience that I had that I really feel is helping shape my career now on the wine buying side because I can I can work as a better partner. I, I have a deeper understanding of what their daily life is and there's a lot that I can do to make make their life easy. How does that work out practically? I mean, how does that take shape? On my role now as a beverage director at the Elm Restaurant Group, I have four concepts that I'm responsible for. They're all pretty specific programs. And Texas, unfortunately, is a little bit behind in terms of the current trends where in New York and San Francisco, you're all drinking Grecian wines and Austrian and Croatia is really cool. Um, it's not really cool. I'm just talking yeah. about it. It's, it's, I mean, it's cool. Just saying. <laughs> People are now drinking <laughs> rosé in Texas, and I'm super excited about that. Like, that's where we got to this summer. Rosé is a cool thing. So distributors aren't bringing in a lot of the really fun stuff that I want to represent and things that I want to highlight and turn my guests on to. Understandably so. Like, I I don't give them flack for it because I've, I did that for so many years. But I have found some amazing distributor partners that – if I do the legwork and I do the research and I find the wines, they're happy to bring it in for me. And I know that it's a anywhere from an eight-week to a 20-week process. But when it comes, they have confidence that I'm just going to bring it in. And it's been, it's been great to introduce some people to some cool stuff. Kind of knowing the chain of distribution has helped you as a sommelier to sort of interact with who you need to interact to get the wine through that chain. Absolutely. That you want to see in the and market. And it, it helps me. My background helps me know what is an unreasonable request, right? Right. Like there are some things that some individuals in our industry ask that are just absolutely unreasonable and they almost get frustrated that, yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, why not? I know why it's not going to happen. So I don't even ask. I know when it's appropriate for me to ask for pricing or when it's like, no, I can get my sales rep some extra commission here. And that those, it's those little things that I hope make me a better partner and allow me to offer my guests a better experience. How is it working with allocations? When things do come to Texas, is it sometimes divided up that Austin gets a big share or is it a little share? Or? You know, back in the day when I first moved to Austin, 2005, 2006, Austin didn't see really any of an allocation and Austin didn't deserve an allocation from the simple fact that we didn't have the consumer base or the market to sell those wines. The buyers in Austin at the time, most of them didn't even know what those wines were that they wanted. In that, in the short 10, 11 years that I've been there, we've seen a lot of that change. And now distributors are much more generous in giving us the share that we want through the relationships that we've created. And Austin's this really great community right now on the consumer side and on the professional side. Everyone's in it together. There isn't any of the kind of back talk or the backstabbing. That, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's very communal and it's great. Like I share allocations with friends and other restaurant groups and we're all, we're all in it together and just hoping to do the right thing. So how did you move from distribution to restaurants? I was working for Dolaterra at the time, great Italian import company. And I honestly, I thought that was going to be it for the rest of my life. I love the wine. I love the people. I love the organization. And I, I was really happy with what I was doing. I was traveling throughout the Southwest and Midwest and it was a lot of travel, but I really enjoyed going to seeing the other communities and talking to people and getting them jazzed about Italian wine. I mean, these small little markets where all they knew was Chardonnay and Cabernet. So I was in a really great spot and I was happy to be doing what I was doing. A good friend of mine, he was actually my roommate when I was living in Tuscany, there's this friend named Andrew Curran. Andrew, in the same way that I fell in love with wine on that trip, he fell in love with food. He was an animal science major, and then he decided that he wanted to cook. So he went up to Hyde Park and graduated from CAA. He spent some time in um, New York cooking under Waxman and 
so on and so forth. And he moved to Austin because his fiance was from Austin. It was her hometown. And I was jazzed to have my buddy moving back to Austin. I remember the night they packed up and left Brooklyn, they had rented a minivan, didn't have a car, of course, rented a minivan, threw everything in. And he gave me a call. It was like eight o'clock at night. And I happened to be at a friend of mine's house, Devin Broly. I was studying with him that evening. He's like, oh, this is a weird call. Let me get it real quick. And I picked up the phone and He's like, hey, man, we're moving to Austin. I'll be there in two days. Like, if you can help me find an apartment, that would be awesome. And I said, yeah, cool. I hung up the phone and Devin was like, who is that? I was like, oh, really good buddy of mine. He's moving to Austin. It's going to be awesome. He's a cook. He needs a place to live. And Devin was like, well, the apartment next door is open. He should just live there. And I was like, yeah, that would be perfect. So he and his wife, Mary Catherine, moved in next door to Devin, and it was an amazing five years when they were neighbors and we were all studying, and it was a lot of fun. Drew ended up starting a restaurant group, the Elm Restaurant Group, um, and his beverage director left about two or three years ago now. And I remember he reached out to me, he reached out to Devin, he's like, I need to talk to both of you. So we're like, yeah, of course. He's like, we got to find a time to do this all together. I'm like, okay, the only time we could find was at 2 a.m. one like Thursday evening. 2 a.m.? Yeah. Three, a lot of good business meetings. Yeah, three, three crazy schedules going on at that time. So Drew came over to my house ahead of time. He got there about midnight, 1230, closed down one of the restaurants, cruised over, and we had a bottle of champagne. And my wife was like, what's, what's the big secrecy to all this? And he wouldn't say anything, which was really odd for him. Like, I can't say anything to Craig unless I talk to Devin. I want everybody there together. And so we all get together finally, and we have a bottle of wine, and you can see his courage kind of building up some. And he's like, I have to ask you both a huge favor. And this is that favor that you can't say no to. And at this point, we're on the edge of our seats. Like, yeah, it's wow, like this a, is like a death cult. Yeah, this is really <laughs> like, big. Like, yeah, we're yeah. in, but right, this right. is a really big thing. He's like... I need you two to write a wine list for me. I'm opening a new French restaurant and I want you two to write this list for me. I lost my beverage director and we're like, yeah, of course. Like this is, shouldn't have freaked out about this. This is easy. This is fun. We're done. Have a great time doing it. Um, and then at the end of the conversation, he's like, and by the way, if one of you wants to come be the beverage director, that would be awesome because I, I need somebody. And I didn't put a lot of thought into it because that was a Thursday night. I get home Friday morning at, you know, five, six in the morning. And Sunday morning, I was leaving to go to Europe for a month. And I thought it'd be some really good R&D for the French restaurant that I was about to put a wine list together for. But I woke up and I remember my wife saying, what was the weird thing? I was like, oh, we're, I get to write a wine list. Like, this will be so cool. I've always wanted to do that. And I get to do it for a good friend. And I was like, oh, yeah, and by the way, like, he needs a beverage director. And this had been, this opening restaurants had been something that Drew and I had talked about, flirted with for 10 or 15 years. I can remember when he was in New York, it was, the internet wasn't really what it is today. And we would snail mail books, either cookbooks or how to open a restaurant books to each other while he was cooking under Waxman and I was at Glazer's playing with Guy Stout, like, and we're just reading these books together, but I never thought it would be a reality. And I went to Italy before I met my wife in Paris. And I, so I hadn't seen her in a week and a half or so. And I remember getting off the plane in Paris and seeing her for the first time. And the first thing she asked me was, did you say yes to Elm? And I was like, baby, I haven't. Yeah. Hello. It's <laughs> yeah. really great to see I'm you. I'm doing good. We're in Paris. Yeah. Italy was amazing. <laughs> She's like, no, but this is what you and Drew have always talked about doing. You have to do this. It's like, let's just enjoy Paris and we'll talk about it. And we talked about it some and it just more and more, it became the right decision and went back and I had a conversation with Devin and I was like, you know, man, I think I'm not go for this. He's like, you have to. He's like, I have my thing going on with Whole Foods and that's what I want to do. Like, this is what you need to do. And, you know, it's one of those rare opportunities that you're you're almost afraid to jump into but you just feel like it's the right thing and it was the right thing and it's been it's amazing and i've put down my anchor and it's the rest of my life and i'm really excited about it so what did that french restaurant wine list end up looking like 
Arrow opened about two and a half years ago now, and it was a 100% French wine list, something that Austin hadn't seen yet. I wanted to make it as approachable to the guest as possible. So this is the first time that someone's really doing 100% French. Yeah, um, 100% anything, like really concept driven, to be honest. I knew that it would be, I knew that I could make it very geeky and intimidating, um, which isn't really my style. I like to try to make things very approachable. The more people drink, the merrier, I think. So I listed everything by grape variety, and I, I ended up calling it not a wine list, but a wine map, because everybody, before Siri came around, everyone knew how to read a map. And so if I created these road signs on that map, these road signs that I could educate my team on, key phrases, then I just felt like the team would be able to effectively sell anything without really having tasted it. And my goal was always... I love talking to tables. I love I love working the floor, but I, I really believe in that idea of it's easier to have an army behind you than one man doing it. And I really wanted education to be a priority in the restaurant, but I, I needed to give them that map so that they could navigate it. So I listed by grape variety. We talked about the flavor profiles of that grape variety, and I promised them that I'll never put a Sauvignon Blanc on the list that doesn't taste like Sauvignon Blanc should taste like. And then I listed everything from lightest to heaviest in terms of weight so that my server can ask, you know, you want a white wine or a red wine? Do you want a light bodied or a full bodied? And my server can easily navigate that wine list and speak on an educated level to the guests. And it's been, it's been great. I would say that fortunately or unfortunately, I feel pretty good about it. Maybe 30% of my guests walk out with an amazing wine experience and they don't even know it was a French wine program. Because it's varietally driven. It's varietally driven and, you know, they look for a Chardonnay at the price they want to spend or a Cabernet Sauvignon. And and I have the other guests that would walk in and say, oh, wow, you have Dovisat and you name it. Like they're all in there. They're not even hidden. It's just not the first thing that most people see. And so then later you opened up a restaurant where you did a strictly Italian wine list. Yeah, we opened... Once I joined the Elm Restaurant Group and we opened Arrow, it was just very obvious because of Drew's love for Italian food and my love for Italian wine that that would be the next thing we do. It just, it was a no-brainer for us. And we opened Italic about six months ago now. I debated, to be honest, about whether to do a 100% Italian wine program, and it was a real struggle for me. Italy as you know, is the most confusing wine country in the world. doesn't matter how much I love it. I wanted it to be easily translatable to the guest. And it was a trip about a year and a half ago. It was already, Italic was already an idea in our heads. And Drew and I took a trip to Napa. And we were tasting with Dan Petrowski out at Masacon, like some ridiculous Italian-themed wines, right? Rabolas and really cool stuff. And I remember walking away from that tasting and Drew said, maybe we just do Italian varietals. And it, it introduces the world. But, you know, after a little debate, I decided, no, it's, I want this to be all Italian. And the difficult thing for me in that was not the selection, but in the layout of the list, the actual formatting, how to do it so that it is user-friendly and I ended up putting a small little map in one corner and I broke it into quadrants being northern, central, southern because people don't know what the Veneto is. So, but they can they can understand northern. And I provide a very brief little tasting note for a grape variety. So in in northern Italy, Nebbiolo is king and this is kind of what Nebbiolo tastes like. And the feedback I got on that program was from the very beginning was all very positive from my friends that don't drink wine. They it would, my wife's friends would come and say to me, Craig, I can actually order off of this wine list because you've made it so easy. And it, it brought a lot of satisfaction because just like the French program, I have the producers that I love to support in there um, that my friends can come and be like, yeah, that's what I'm drinking. But for the average consumer to be able to navigate it makes it fun. And it was probably more of a challenge because in that case with the Italian wines, you have some really obscure grape varieties. Absolutely. Toraldigo, Frappato, Lambrusco, Norello Mascalese, you name it. Like Those aren't things that people know. And the training I did was a little bit different to where I simply said, when our guests ask for a Malbec or a Zinfandel, this is why they like Malbec and Zinfandel. And this is what in Italy tastes like that. So this is how we're going to steer them. And by prompting my team with 
five or six of those little kind of things to have in their pocket, it's, it's easy for them to move around it. So what are the differences that you see with how consumers engage with those two different restaurants when they go into the French restaurant or when they go into the Italian restaurant? Do they behave a little differently? I wanted to make the Italian restaurant very approachable. In all my experiences in Italy, wine is, wine is treated as a condiment. Wine isn't put on a pedestal like it is in California or in France. Wine is meant to enhance the food. Food is the most important thing to Italians. It's not the Pope. It's not their family. It's food. That's what they care about. And anything that is sitting at that table is meant to enhance that food. Wine is used as a condiment. It's used to provide lubrication for the conversation. And really helping my team to understand that and helping the guests to understand that has made the Italic program very user-friendly. Every little trotteria I ever went to in Italy had a carafe of wine sitting on the table. Just house wine. It didn't matter what it was or where it was from, uh, which is hard for us in the United States to grasp. But it was always delicious. always went great with the food. So I put in some Italian white and red keg wine and you get a little cup of red wine for four bucks during happy hour. You can get a craft for 16 and people are starting to get the idea that, yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just good. And that's what I'm getting when I come in. It's not on the menu, but you know, it's there and it's a very approachable program and I, I want people to enjoy it. Over at Arrow, there is a little bit more of a pretentiousness surrounding French wine. The French kind of put wine on a pedestal a little bit, but to try to, to try to push that under the table some, that's why I listed everything by Great Friday. So it is easier for individuals to navigate. And how has the Austin restaurant and wine scene changed since 05? Quite dramatically. You know, when I, when I showed up, there were maybe two or three quote unquote good restaurants in town that wouldn't compete with anything on a national level. Um, and there was no one that was, there wasn't a beverage program. There wasn't a sommelier. There were, there were individuals that were in charge of a wine program. And there were people that definitely cared, right? But there wasn't the infrastructure. There wasn't the community to really support those individuals. And that's changed tremendously. It started with almost the chef-driven movement. The idea of all these passionate chefs that wanted to put together focused food programs opening chef-owned and operated restaurants and finding success in that. Um, and that has naturally moved into the kind of second generation of those chef-driven restaurants is a chef saying, man, I want everything to be amazing and hiring beverage professionals to curate programs for them. And that's where we are now. The, the community in Austin is amazingly strong. There are so many passionate people on the distribution side, on the supply side, on the, the writer side, on the sommelier side, that there's some really awesome, awesome stuff happening. How many sommeliers were in town in 2005? Zero. Yeah. And how many are there now? You know, I, there's sommelier is kind of a weird word. Um, there's this rising tide that everyone's just really getting into it and trying to keep it really cool and kind of that pay it forward attitude. You know, there were so many individuals that helped myself and Devin and Mark Sayre get to where we were. We were flying across the nation to seek mentoring from individuals. And those people never wanted anything. They just wanted to help. And so it was important that we felt like it was important that we kind of instill that idea into the sommelier community of Austin. Like, awesome, you passed your intro. Great. Go find somebody else that's trying to do that and help them. In the meantime, I'll find you somebody to help you get wherever else you want to go in the industry. But that idea of paying it forward and, and bringing people up, and it's pretty empowering. And so you guys were kind of the first wave of sommeliers in Austin. Yeah, I can remember uh, I had been studying with Guy Stout and with Drew Hendricks, and it was one of the reasons I wanted to stay in Houston, to be honest, and not take the promotion to move to Austin and change companies because I had this great study group and it was a support group and it was something I was really into, but I knew what I had to do for my career. So I moved and I kind of buried my nose in work for a little while. And I, I met this guy, Devin Broly at the time. He was the assistant wine buyer at the Whole Foods Lamar and kind of had a little chip on his shoulder, like, 
he was better than me and I was a distributor and we were playing that little game for a little while. And he called me up one day and I thought, I looked at my phone and I thought, oh, what is this? What does this guy want now? And he's like, hey, uh, I just talked to an individual, Guy Stout, and he said I should call you. And I was like, well, sure, what? He's like, you were studying for this exam? It's like, yeah, definitely. He's like, I am too. Like, great, well, we should get together. And I could kind of tell in his voice that he didn't really have a lot of confidence in what he thought I was going to bring to the table. Um, but we met one Monday morning at 8 a.m. at Whole Foods. We got an office at Whole Foods to sit and meet in. And I walked in and I said, I think I know how to study for this. And I just plopped this three-ring binder that was six inches thick on the table with all my maps and notes. And and he looked at it like wide-eyed. He was like, oh my God, like this is this is real. And Devin and I just started hitting the books hard and Mark Sayre started studying with us. And it, for a long time, it was the three of us and we were just doing it and we didn't know what we were doing, but we were having fun. And it's really just grown from there. I think it was that it was that study group, that original Austin study group, and it was the friendship, the bond that we had with each other that has really infected the rest of Austin. And it's that idea of friendship and helping everybody out. So how does that play out? I mean, what's the scene like and how does playing it forward really happen? You know, now I would say that there are I don't even know, countless study groups. There's a different study group every day and it's easy to plug people in and out of different study groups. It's easy to find a group that is at your level and is at a time suitable because there's so many people involved right now and everyone's just trying to help each other out. And it's, it's a common, it's a common goal and it's not, not everyone's studying for a test or trying to earn a certification Everyone's just really into wine, and it's it's a cool thing. And how would you say that Austin fits into the greater puzzle of Texas in terms of Houston, Dallas, San Antonio? Austin is not the largest market. Houston and Dallas are much larger markets, probably accounting for, I don't know, 35% of overall sales, where Austin is you know closer to that 20-25%. But the cool stuff is coming to Austin. It's a, it's a market that is, our consumer base is very highly educated. Uh, we have 13 colleges and universities within the city limits. They're very young and they have a high disposable income. So our consumer base is these individuals that want to be challenged. They're, they're drinking Italian, they're drinking Spain. They're, they want to be challenged by these inexpensive wines that represent amazing value and great quality. Uh, they don't want to drink their mother's Chardonnay. They want to take something cool to mom and say, this is what I learned today in school type of thing. And it makes it really fun for us in the industry to kind of fuel that fuel that fire some. And so it's allowed you to kind of move towards wines that are maybe a little less in the beaten path. Yeah, absolutely. Austin isn't very showboaty. It doesn't, you don't need to label the $300 Brunello facing out so the entire restaurant can see it. In general, like on, on the restaurant side, that, you know, that sweet spot is still the 45 to 65, but I I don't have, I have guests that don't mind at all paying upwards of two or $300 for something. And are there things where you're like, man, this would really take off in Austin, but it's just not here yet. We just don't have the wine. Not, not yet. Because there's enough, there's enough force behind what is happening in Austin that people can get behind something. You know, Lambrusco, I think, is a great example of that. I love Lambrusco. I think it's one of the most amazing wines in the world, and it's quaffable. You don't have to think about it, and it goes great with everything. I sell probably two and a half cases a week of Lambrusco at the Italian restaurant. That would never be something that we could have been talking about a year and a half ago. But now you're seeing Lambrusco popping up everywhere. People are recognizing like, yeah, this is good. It's inexpensive. It goes awesome with everything. It's a beautiful aperitif. And we can, I really believe that we can make whatever we want to happen. If there is something out there, there's a handful of us that will go get it and go through the proper channels to bring it and then put our teams behind it and we'll make it happen. 
how old are you now in terms of you're in your 30s? I'm 39. And you About see, to be the big 4-0. The big 4 <laughs> And you see a lot of people in their 20s in the market saying like, oh, I, I want to do the sommelier thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. I was talking to one of my servers the other night and he was like, uh, I see him studying in the corner like before a shift. I was like, well, it's Windows of the World. That's a great wine book. What are you doing? He's like, well, I didn't want to tell you. I wanted to be a surprise, but I'm studying for my sommelier exam. I was like, that's awesome. He's like, my goal is by the time I'm 22, to have passed my certified. And I thought, oh my God, I am so old. Like this 22 year old kid has this ambition and he's this drive and he has it all set up and he's 22 years old. Like it's amazing that youth is an amazing thing. You see a lot of population turnover in Austin just because of the amount of college students that are in the city. You know, there isn't a lot of turnover. Uh, a about 10 years ago, right when I first moved, the mayor actually put an initiative into Austin and challenged Austin to say, hey, we have all these amazing college grads that are leaving. They're not staying here. So let's create a city where people want to stay here. And his goal, I think, was in 15, 10, 15 years, something was to have something like 35,000 condos downtown. And you look at Austin now and the landscape has changed completely. There's all these condos downtown, but it has created this bustling city where there are there is activity on every street of downtown any time of the day. It can be three in the afternoon on a Thursday or ten in the morning on a Monday, and there's people walking around and doing stuff. And it's it's this real urban vibe that is it's pretty awesome. I feel very fortunate. I um, I ride my bike to work every day, and or I walk, and you know people. People look at me a little crazy when I tell them this and um, I have this wine bag that I put on the back of my bike to get bottles between the restaurants and I see friends walking. They're like, why do you still ride your bike? I'm like, because I can. It's like when we travel and we go to the great cities of the world, be it a New York or a San Francisco or a Paris or Barcelona, we all get joy on our vacations by walking around. And I'm really fortunate that I live in a cool city and I work on downtown and that I get to do that on a daily basis. Like that's not something a lot of people get to experience. So how do you see Austin developing in the future on the wine side? I thought you were going to ask, how do I see it developing as a city? And that kind of scares me a little bit because there is so much growth going on right now. And we're all trying really hard to keep the good vibes going. Um, and doing an awesome job of it, but I don't know where that part of it's going to go. On the wine side, I think we're just going to continue to, I think we're going to continue develop in the sense that I think there's going to be more and more consumers and more and more professionals that are enthralled in the wine business and wines. And it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And Austin is already in the past two or three years, it's become that destination in Texas where the producers, like it's the only place they want to come. And that's awesome to me because we're getting so many cool people that are coming through on a routine basis pretty regularly. And it's like, yeah, back in the day, it would have been like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is coming and I have to plan this out for him. And now it's like, oh yeah, man, you're here last week. It's awesome to see you again, but I can't make it this time. I know you're going to be back soon. And that's, it's pretty awesome. And what about the consumers? What do you hear them asking for in Austin? And what would they like to see change or not change? You know, I don't see them asking as much as just listening, to be honest. They're aware of that kind of sense of community that I keep referencing. And they're aware of the knowledge. And a lot of them are coming to that restaurant or that wine shop just to learn. And they're the consumers are willing to listen. And, you know, back in our day... 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was Robert Parker, right? And now I see a lot of these consumers that are actually driven by a specific professional in the Austin industry. I'm getting, I get a text every day from some friend that says, Hey, I'm going to this restaurant. Like, have you been lately? Any advice on what I should drink? Or I'm at this shop. Should I get this one or this one? And that's really cool. And I'm not the only one. It's all of us have these kind of consumers that we've generated that rapport with that. We're pointing them in cool directions. 
And what about the distribution side? Has that evolved as much as the restaurant side or is there a lag time? Yeah, it re- there is definitely a lag time. Absolutely. It's kind of that push-pull idea, but it's that lag time is getting less and less and the distributors the distributors are really working with wine buyers to get them what they want. They understand what's happening and they're as equally as excited about it as we are. That we've seen more distributors come into the market. We've seen more distributors willing to aid us in getting the wines that we want to represent. You know, back in the day it was, no, this is this is our portfolio. We're not that this is it. You don't want this, fine. Uh, but you can't get anything else. And now they're like, our distributor partners are in. They're working just as hard as we are and they're as excited as we are to bring the cool stuff. And what about national level press? I feel like there's press from major magazines that tends to point to Austin when they get to Texas as kind of the hotbed of happening. Yeah, it's kind of weird to me that that's happening. Um, I I don't think it's as out, as out there as it should be, and I kind of like that, to be honest. Like, I feel like Austin should be getting a lot more of that national credibility and recognition. But we have some amazing events annually, be it Austin City Limits Music Festival or F1 South by Southwest, which is now boomed into this huge two and a half week event. And so that has brought a lot of people to the city. The thing that I would say about visiting Austin is if you really want to see Austin, don't come on one of those weekends because you're going to, you're going to the race, you're going to the music festival. You're not going to get the experience, the Austin that I really want to show you. You're going to have an amazing time at Austin city limits. It's where I met my wife, but you're not going to get to see Austin. Are there other cities, either in the United States or elsewhere, where you think, oh, that's a city that reminds me of what's going on wine and restaurant-wise in Austin? Wine and restaurant-wise, you know, I think Tulsa is really coming aboard. They have some really awesome things happening. I've been fortunate enough to travel to Atlanta for the past four or five years, and Atlanta has some really cool stuff happening as well. Um, I've heard great things about Nashville. I haven't been yet. Yeah, there's definitely, it's just a good time to be in our industry nationally, I believe. Do you see a certain style of service that you'd say, oh, that's an Austin sommelier? You know, Austin service has always been categorized by this very lackadaisical, almost flippant type of service. And that is changing, which is great. It is still relaxed. You can walk into almost any restaurant in Austin with flip-flops and a hat on, even the nice ones. But it's a more relaxed style of service, but it's something that we all really care about. Craig Collins, he's had a hand in shaping where Austin is, and he's been excited by the changes. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Great times. Craig Collins of the Elm Restaurant Group in Austin, Texas. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.